How are we doing? I'm sitting there, I'm like, what's taking her so long to get special music going? <laughs> it's my fault, I didn't read the outline. How's everybody doing? We have a good week? Man, I tell you, I'm getting old. BBS used to be nothing for me. Now, I'm, I'm wasted after the week. I'm just like totally out of energy. You also start to realize you're not as young as you used to be when you have no idea what the kids are talking about. I was talking about one of the youth about their nickname and they're like, uh, yeah, I'm Nike 2 Fly 2018. And I'm like, you're what? What happened to like champ and sport, you know? I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy. Uh, before we jump into to scripture, let me go ahead and uh, outline a couple things for you guys. If I can find my clicker. Thank you, ma'am. Uh, so it's fifth Sunday next week. Uh, if, if you're not a regular here at Harmony on fifth Sunday, what we like to do is at 9.30 we have a Spanish service. Uh, of course, at 11 you're at the English service. And then also what we do is little kids are in children's church right now. But on the fifth Sunday, which happens every three months, we get everybody together at the 11 o'clock service and we do one big church fellowship. It's a great way, one, to, to worship as a family. Two, it's a great thing for your kids to see you worship. Right? It's great for them to learn on a regular basis at their level, but it's profound to watch them see mom and dad worship God, get into the word, and they see that just the hearing it in their class, but the example set by you. Okay? So next Sunday at 11, we'll have one service for everybody. Afterwards, we'll have a potluck meal. So I'll ask if you remember, bring a side dish or a meal or a dessert. And then um, during that, I will tell you guys the exciting things that are happening at Harmony Baptist Church and what kind of the game plan is for the next few months. All right? All right, let's go ahead and jump in. This is an interesting sermon today. And I love going through books of the Bible in order because God presents topics, not necessarily in the order that you and I would sometimes think. And so when you look at the book of 1 Peter, which is the book that we're in, most of the book is about suffering. It's Peter writing to a group of Christians who are experiencing persecution and trials. And so throughout this book, he's been reminding them, here are the things that you need to do to be successful in these times of suffering. And so we've been framing it up each week with these three verses that we're calling the keys to the series. And again, if you haven't been here, my hope with these three verses is, I know not all of you remember everything I preach on. I know. It's crazy. I don't know why you guys are that way. But I know not every one of you verbatim can tell me my sermon the following Sunday. I mean, let's be honest, the following Sunday at 1 o'clock today. A lot of you would struggle to remember all. But my hope is, is after six or seven weeks in a series, you'll remember these three verses. And these verses will kind of go in your Christian toolbox. You'll have meditated on them. You'll know them. And when God sends certain things your way, you'll be able to pull these out and use them as your instruments to be successful in those times. And so the three verses we've looked at are first, 2 Timothy 3.12. And we've said, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And the point? Expect suffering. Being a Christian does not give you an easy past life. That means there's no struggles, no trials, no persecution. In fact, throughout his word, 
Christ reminds his people, in fact, you'll probably get persecuted more because of me. And so you and I, we need to make sure that when times of suffering come our way, we're not shocked by them. We've been preparing for them, we've been expecting them, and we are now ready to face them successfully. The second verse we've looked at has been in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 11. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the schemes of the devil. The point, not only do you expect suffering, but you are uniquely equipped for suffering. Why? Because as a Christian, God has given you His Spirit... And that spirit has empowered you so that unlike those who don't have Christ in their lives, when suffering comes your way, you have unique capabilities, tools that are your disposal for you to be successful in those times. The key is you don't have to stand just in your own might in those moments. You can lean on him and he will power you through those. So we expect suffering. We're uniquely equipped for suffering. And the third thing is in Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. And so the third thing we realize in suffering is, there's purpose. This has probably been the biggest one we've talked about, right? As Americans in this modern culture, many of us are on a path pursuing pleasure, comfort, and ease. That's what we want in life. I want pleasure, I want comfort, and I want ease. So when those are the goals of your life, when you hit a moment of suffering or a season of suffering, everything's thrown out of whack. Everything you're pursuing, everything you're working towards, everything that brings you fulfillment has been paused. And in fact, you're experiencing the opposite. And so in those times of suffering, most people in modern culture aren't ready for it. And so they just, they're devastated. They don't know what to do. They don't know how to move forward. And even those who have faith, often what their prayer is in those times of suffering is, God, end this as soon as possible. Just end it. Please let the storm pass. You and I have to realize as Christians, that's not our focus. Pleasure, comfort, and ease, well, we don't hate them. They're also not our goals. The biggest desires of our life are to be in a loving, intimate relationship with God. And because of that, we are used by God to accomplish His will and to build His kingdom. And so if those are the passions of our life, is that God uses me to do His work, I realize that sometimes in the midst of suffering, that's the greatest opportunity. And so if a season of suffering has to come for me to be used by God to help build His kingdom and spread His word, so be it. Our prayer no longer becomes, God, end this as soon as possible. Our prayer becomes, God, shape me, use me, and teach me in this moment. God, don't let this season end until you've accomplished what you want to accomplish. It's a completely different mindset. Now, today's interesting, and here's why it's interesting. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3. So most of this book, right, we've gone through chapter 1, chapter 2, everything we've read, you go, hey, that makes complete sense to say to somebody who's suffering. But then you get to chapter 3, and he starts to talk about marriage. And you're like, why is he talking about marriage? And this is why I love just going to God's Word as is, right? What you and I like to do with God's Word a lot is cherry pick, right? We go into it and we're like, I like this, and I like this, 
and I like this. I'm going to take those, those I'm going to use. Those I'm going to put on a t-shirt and a coffee mug. I'm going to sing songs about them. I'm going to write them down. They're wonderful. But then we come to passages and we're like, eh, I don't like that one so much. So you know, I'm just going to skip over that and we'll go from there. And I'll be honest, there's times even as a pastor, I'm like, do I have to preach that one this weekend? <laughs> I'm like, put on your stilt-toed boots because we're about to get taken to school today. <laughs> but the point of the word is, is not for you and I to be comfortable. It's for us to admit that God who is above us has wisdom that doesn't always make sense to us. And if we are truly his servants, we're going to submit ourselves to that and understand what he's saying. And I think there's beauty here. I think the context of why you talk about marriage in this moment is that what God's saying is, is in times of suffering, there are certain areas of our lives that we look to shortchange ourselves. Right? You get to a moment of suffering and there's certain relationships, there's certain behaviors, there's certain disciplines in your life that you suddenly give your, yourself an excuse to let go. And I think what he's pointing to here is, is that for some of us in times of suffering, we start to neglect the relationships that are at the core of our lives, including our marriages. And brothers and sisters, what I want you to truly understand in this is if we are servants of God, you and I have to understand we don't use God as an additive. Meaning we don't come to Him and say, here's my life, God. I've got a few little gaps for you. I'd like you to come in and fill those gaps. It's not what He does. God is not here to add on to your house. God is here to rebuild you from head to toe. He is here to make you completely and utterly something different. And He doesn't care if He has to throw out everything else to start over. And so I want you, as you learn, read this, to understand this is the wisdom of God. Does it align with culture? No, it does not. But frankly, I'd ask you to take a look around at our culture and see how successful we are at relationships and ask yourself, should we really be submitting to the wisdom of the world that we live in? Because if you look around us, we're not following this and it doesn't seem to be going very well for us in terms of marriages and in romantic relationships. So let's jump in. 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 1. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. All right, so let's just jump into all the stuff that offends us. All right, first off, a very, very important thing for you guys to understand when it comes to men and women. And guys, this is completely against culture. God has created men and women equal, but different. 
me say that again. God has created men and women equal but different. We don't believe this anymore. We don't believe this anymore. We, we have bought in, in America, in modern culture, into this idea of full-blown equality. And what we say by equality isn't just that we mean people are of equal value, but that everybody should be treated exactly the same way. Now, I want you to pause for a second and not just think about society, but I want you to shrink your world down. And if you're a parent, think just to your own house. Do you treat your children exactly the same way? I don't. I'll give you a small example. Tyler is a very outward, emotional child. If I yell at Tyler or if I get mad at Tyler, he will almost immediately cry, get sad, or visibly on the outside show me a reaction. And what that does for me as a parent is, is I'm trying to make sure he understands that this moment is important. I see he gets it. He gets it. And so I'm able to pause because I go, I see that it's setting into him that this is a big moment. Jake's completely different. Jake does not show me on the outside the same amount of emotion that Ty does. And so I'll be honest, in the first couple years with him, I've made mistakes. Because what I would try to do is I would try to discipline in a manner to get the same kind of reaction that I would get from Ty. But what I found with Jake is I could... I had to escalate. I had to do more. I had to keep going because I, I couldn't get him to cry. I couldn't get him to act like it was serious. I couldn't get him to give me that heartfelt, Dad, I'm sorry. And I'm like, what do I got to do with this kid? But I'll tell you, I had a, an important moment with him once. It was when we were going through potty training just a few weeks ago. He just didn't seem to be getting it. And, and I, I kind of felt like I was at my wit's end. Three hours later, I'm laying him down to bed and he goes, Dad... I'm not going to do that anymore because I'm a big boy now. And I'm like, I didn't even think he was listening to me when I was talking to him about that. But here he is, and three hours later, without us being on that topic, he's thinking about it. His heart, his mind were there. And it was this kind of moment for me like, man, Luke, you've got to change up your game plan. The techniques and tactics you use with Ty may not be the techniques and tactics you use with Jake. I want to get them to the same place, but I may have to use different ways and methods to get them there. I share that example because I think this is what culturally we're doing wrong these days. Yes, men and women are of equal value to God, but we are not the same. We're not physically the same. We're not emotionally the same. We're not spiritually the same. We react to things in unbelievably different ways. And if you've been married, you know this. You sense it all the time. I mean, men, how many times have you made the mistake where your wife comes home and tells you about the bad things that happened that day, and your assumption is, she needs me to save the day. Babe, let me give you all the solutions to all those problems. Does she care about any of the solutions you gave? No, because she wasn't coming to you for solutions. She was coming to emotionally share with you what was happening. And by emotionally sharing, that helps her get past those moments. Men, we don't do that. If a guy goes to a guy with a problem, it's not so the guy can be like, yeah, man, that's tough. It's so that hopefully the other guy goes, well, here's what you should do. <laughs> Vice versa, right? Women, how many times has your husband come home, had a rough day, and you're trying to make him talk about it? And he doesn't want to talk about it. 
Talking about it for most of us doesn't make it better. It makes it worse. So what we're saying is, give me a moment to let that die and bury. Then I can be here with you guys and be good. Instead, you're trying to dig it back up and make me go through it. And I ain't going to be happy after we do that. It's like one of a million examples of how we just don't function the same way. Men, do you ever hear your wife talking on the phone with their female friends and you're like, you guys talk about that? <laughs> if I ever walked into the guys and started talking about that, they would all look at me like, what is going on? I mean, women, you may not know this. You can literally put a good front group of men together in a room and there will be 20 minutes of no talking. And we're not weirded out by it. That's cool. I've never seen that with my wife and her girlfriends. <laughs> they get to more depth in their three minutes of phone conversations than I get into three weeks of hanging out with my brother. <laughs> and I say this be, even though it's general, because when we try to treat everybody like they're the same, do you know what ends up happening? We don't specifically address anybody in the optimal way. Instead of giving men what men really need, instead of giving women what they really need, we end up giving nobody what they need. And what creates is this mass confusion that you now see in our society. Why in our society do we have people who think, I can say I'm a woman? Because we don't really treat anybody like sex matters anymore. Everybody's the same. We treat everybody the same. No one knows what it means to be man. No one knows what it means to be woman. Because in our society, we've taught you they don't matter. It's not true. That's not what God created, and that was not His desire and intention. And so I need you to understand that as we look into this. Equal, but different. And there's a couple places we see this play out within God's Word. Look at Genesis 1.27. From the beginning, God says this. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Who? Male and female. Was male only made in his image? No. Both male and female are reflections of the image of God. Both of them are used by God to be his temple where he puts his spirit. Both of them are used and called co-heirs with Christ. Both of them have eternal value and purpose. However, they're different. And we see this talked about throughout the rest of the entire time with church. Go to your Bibles and flip with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're not talking about marriage. But what we are talking about is we're talking about how different talents and abilities come together. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 12. It says, For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not part of the body, it is not this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not part of the body, it is not reason for any less to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? Do you understand what he's saying here? He's saying every person has a different role and responsibility in the kingdom of God. 
The only way that we are able to accomplish the work we do is when those different abilities come together and in one spirit move forward. It is the diversity united that brings us power and capability. And so though these roles are different, it's when they're lined up together that God's power and purpose can be played out. We've had the same conversation at this church about pastors and members. Am I more important than you? No. But do we have the same role? No. Would God want us all to have the same role? No. We have different responsibilities, different purposes, but we are both equally responsible for the kingdom moving forward. We are both equally responsible for the mission that we've been given. And so I need you to have this context as we start looking at these things. So let's talk about the next offensive thing. Submission. Wives, submit to your husbands. Women, how many of you like that word? Here's why we don't like that word. We don't like that word because we have a uniquely American view of submission. When we think about submission, we think about two forces going against each other in battle and one force overpowering and defeating the other. Right? We think of it in terms of like MMA fighting. I have forced you to submit to me. And so in that term, submission is a bad thing because it means defeat. It means loss. That is never the type of submission that God talks to. God is talking about voluntary submission that comes from love. I choose because I love you and God has asked me to, to submit to you. Do you understand how different that is? See, when it's about force, here's the conversations that come up. Well, what if I'm smarter than my husband? What if I'm a better leader than my husband? What if I'm more faithful than my husband? Have you met my husband? He's an idiot. God's point is, the success of your marriage isn't about whether you're talented or he's talented. It's about do you obey God. It is absolutely possible for a woman to be more faithful, a better leader, a better communicator, a better everything than her spouse. God still looks at that couple and goes, I ask you to submit to your husband. Because I'm asking you to trust in God. I'm asking you to trust in me. This is what I've built and this is how I'm asking you to function. And so where people get wrapped around the axle with this word submission is they want to say, well, I'm, I'm more powerful. This isn't about power, it's about love. Are you willing to lovingly submit to the plan that God has laid aside? And to be honest, guys, that's what we're asked every single day as Christians. Every single day as Christians, God is going to present things to you that don't make sense. Every single day, God is going to present things to you that go against your natural inklings. And what you will choose as a servant is, God, in this, while I don't like it and don't understand it, I love you and I trust you. So I submit myself to you. That's what submission looks like. Look at Ephesians 5.22. Ephesians 5 is the other big passage in the Bible that talks to marriage. It says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit everything to their husbands. Do you get what God just said there? He, he's giving context to why he's asking wives to submit to their husbands. 
everything relationally points back to God. Everything relationally points back to the gospel truth presented through the life of Jesus Christ. And so husbands and wives, you may not realize this, your relationship really isn't about you. Your relationship is actually a living example of the gospel. It's a living example of how Christ and the church interact. And what he's saying is, is women, your role of this living metaphor is to exemplify the church. You are the one that uses your talents and abilities and lovingly submits them to the leadership of Christ to allow his work to be done. And so, wives, your role is basically daily to look like what God wishes the church look like. A group of loving, talented, committed people saying, I will do what is needed to make this successful. And so think about that. How beautiful is it and, and how responsible feeling is that, that our marriages don't just reflect us. They're actually, as Christians, reflecting Christ and the church. It's a testimony to those things. Third thing. True beauty is eternal, not ex or internal, not external. Now notice, he doesn't say that we can't be focused on the outward appearance. But his point that he makes to us is, please do not spend more time caring about how you look outwardly than who you are inwardly. We should never look at our lives and find that we are spending more time on makeup, clothes, hair, working out, or any of those things than we are on being close to Christ. Than on reflecting a spiritual discipline and behavior that in our actions displays that we are His children. I mean, let's be real. A lot of us, male and female, take a ton of time to think about what we are putting forward for people to see. I mean, have you ever, you ever remember high school, you would actually craft an image outwardly that had nothing to do with who you were? I actually loved that I moved a ton as a kid, because you know what I ended up learning was, every time I'd move, I'd be like, here, I'm not going to be the nerdy guy. Here, I'm going to be the cool guy. And I would try at the new place for a couple weeks to be the cool guy. Do you know what always that happened? I ended up being the nerdy guy. You know why? Because I'm a nerd. <laughs> That's who I am. It was too much effort, too much work, and way too hard to hide that I was a nerd. <laughs> but there are some of you, your whole lives are dedicated to building a facade that isn't you. There's some of you, you've built your entire value proposition on who you are as a person, on what you look like externally. And, and parents, wake up. Your kids are in a way worse world than you are. Don't you love on Instagram those pictures of the ladies who are like, I just woke up like this. Yeah, right. You just woke up with your hair like that and the makeup like that and the lighting like that. Who's taking the photo? I have never woke up looking like that. I have never seen any of these pictures that are supposed to be just candid moments that looked real. And I'm around a lot of people, okay? I mean, I see you guys all the time. We're not always looking like those Instagram photos. I mean, have you ever run into a person that you only knew on social media and you're like, that's you? <laughs> really? Who is this person then? I 
don't recognize you at all. <laughs> we have built ourselves on lies about what I can make myself look like. That's why I love that you're at a smaller church. Because I want you to be at a place you're known. I want you to be at a place where like, I have what I have with my family. If I walk in to my parents' house, it doesn't matter what I say. My mom and dad know me so well, they just read me. Hey, what's bugging you? Nothing's bugging you. Liar. What's bugging you? How do you know something's bugging me? Because of the way you're standing. Because of the way your shoulders are leaning. Because of that stupid fake smile you have on your face. When you have a fake smile, your lips do this weird thing. At, like, they know me. There's no point lying. You need to be known like that. Because what God cares about, what's really in here. How many of you are spending time shaping that? He mentions it here with the women, but this is an issue for all of us to look at and to acknowledge in our behaviors and in the way that we compose ourselves. Look at 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So men, let me just talk to you for a second. Women... I'll dress you first. Let me do that. Do not spend more time on your fashion and how you look than on your heart. Men, cherish your wives for who they are, not how they look. Do not sit there and compare them to some supermodel who spends 60 hours a week to make sure she looks a certain way, has starved herself, and has a whole team of people to make her look that way, and wish you had that when what you really have next to you is someone who loves you, sacrifices for you and pours out everything they have to make your family right. You are being driven by the world around you to cherish the wrong things. Don't. When you cherish the wrong things, it makes them focus on the wrong things. Get right on that. And I'll just be honest, that can go either way. I love how we like to act like men are the only one caught up in the world of lust. But movies like Magic Mike and Fifty Shades of Grey don't make millions of dollars because of men. Let's be real. It's not men at those movie theaters. Alright? All of us can take this advice and wisdom. Third, men. Authority is used to honor and serve. So wives, God is asking you to submit out of love. Men, he's saying, I'm giving you authority, but you better use it the right way. This authority is not here for your will to happen. This authority is given to you to make God's will happen. Do you understand that? The authority given to you is not for your will to come true. It's for God's will to come true. Look what happens in Ephesians 5. And men, listen to this. And I love this one because I'll be honest. I've been around some male chauvinists before who have used Ephesians 5. And they focus a ton on the women submit. That's right. They don't like to talk about this part of it. I'll be honest with you. Like, if you gave me the option to pick which one of these responsibilities I could have as a husband or wife, I'd take the wives. Because you get compared to the church. Men, do you know who we get compared to? To Jesus. Now, if you've ever tried that to measure up to Christ, guess what happens? You fail. 
And so look what it says. Husbands, love your wives as, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Do you want to know what men in your life should look like? It should look like what Christ did for us. When I look at you as men and as husbands, it should look like what Christ did up on that cross. Even though he had all the power in the universe, he used that to save us. He used that to die for us. That authority God has given you is not for you. It's for Him and it's for the ones that He's put into your protection. And then this goes back to what we are talking about. What do you value at your house? Do you care that your wife looks like a model or do you care that she loves you with all her heart? Because here He says what you're supposed to do is to cherish her. To lift her up without blemish. To present her in the best possible way. So I want to get honest. Let me pick on you a little bit. If you guys are best at nagging to your friends about your spouse, you got a problem. Either way. It's okay to have friends and to share with them some of the struggles you're going through. But if I were to talk to your friends about your spouse and all they could say is negative things, that says something about the way you present those people. It means that when you're with others, you're not lifting them up. You're not talking about how wonderful they are. You're not talking about how loving you are. Instead, you are pointing out everything ugly. You're actually doing the opposite of this. Instead of covering those blemishes, you're pointing them out. You're highlighting them. We have an unbelievable responsibility here. And we need to make sure that we're fulfilling it. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Give up everything for them. Covenant, not contract. This is huge. When you read both Ephesians 5 and you read 1 Peter, do you know what there isn't? There's no conditions. Right? It didn't say, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church if... Your wife does these things. It doesn't say, wives, submit to your husbands if your husband does these things. It simply says, if you are a husband, you do this. If you're a wife, you do this. And here's why that's unbelievably beautiful. When you're involved in contracts, do you know what you look for? You look at the other party to see if they're holding up their end of the bargain. And the moment they're not holding up their end of the bargain, one, you start calling them out on that, and two, you start using it as justifications not to hold up your end of the bargain. I can't even tell you at work it works this way. It will have contracts where you realize, like, hey, they fulfilled their end of it, so they're probably not going to call us fulfill, not fulfilling our end of it. Because if it ever got into a legal battle, we'd both be in trouble. So we're both just going to agree to not even look at the contract anymore. 
How many marriages have you seen where the husband and wife are far more focused on the other spouse and how they're performing than they are themselves? What would happen in your marriage if instead of you keeping a laundry list of everything your spouse has done wrong to you, you kept a laundry list on the things you need to get better at? Or what if they kept a list of the things that they were supposed to get better at? When we're in contracts, we look for all the shortcomings and then we justify not fulfilling our bargain. God goes, covenants aren't that way. And I love 1 Peter because he gets real here. In 1 Peter, notice what he said. He said, wives be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word. What's he saying? A Christian wife should still be submissive to a non-Christian husband. So even if he's a non-believer, he thinks all of this is junk. He doesn't even think Christ is real. If you're a wife, God's asking you to honor God by doing this. And see, that's the biggest thing, guys. Here's the reality of marriage without Christ. I honestly don't know how a marriage without Christ works. It's two sinners in intimate, close proximity handling the biggest and worst things of life, hoping it won't blow up. Anytime I put two imperfect sinners together and ask them to work on huge things, most of the time it doesn't end well. The only way to get through marriage is to have that love of Christ pouring down. To remember in those moments when he's being an idiot, that the reason you still love him, you still submit to him, is because it's not really about him. It's what Christ, your master and savior, has asked you to do. And men, same way, in those moments where she is making you mad and you feel completely disrespected and you feel like you've been treated like a child, you still honor and cherish her, not because she deserves it, but because your master, Lord and Savior has asked you to and you committed to him to. And so the beauty of a covenant marriage is God is constant. So if the one condition is if God's still God, I do these things, you will always do these things. He's not changing. And so make sure if you're married, your relationship isn't two people, it's three. It's husband, it's wife, and it's built on the foundation of Christ. That's what keeps it moving forward. If you're in a contract, I pray for you. Because you're going to be able to always have a list of shortcomings. Always. And if you want to, you will find ways to use those to justify your own shortcomings. You should be consumed with what God has asked you to fulfill. What God has asked you to do. You let your spouse worry about fulfilling their roles in their relationship with God. That's the kind of mentality that we are supposed to have. Ephesians 5.30 because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. 
all of this is built in the foundation of what Christ does for us. And when we do it, something beautiful happens. We can't understand it. We can't explain it. But we become one. We become one. And when we are one, that is when we are strong, that's when we're united, and that's when we can face things that we could never dream to face by ourselves. And so I encourage you, as you leave this week, come back to this passage and really pray about it. Really look at it. I know how weird it is in 2018 America to say these things. They're not even weird. To most people, they're unbelievably dated and offensive. But we're not here to serve the culture. We are here because we believe in a perfect God and we believe this is His model that He has built from the beginning of time. And we serve it and we obey it because He's master and we're servant. I encourage you if you're married, dig into this and you look at what your roles and responsibilities are. Not your spouse's, yours. And you pray for God to keep maturing you and growing you. And then to both of you, remember, your marriage is a sign to all those around you of what God can do. I pray that people look at the way your marriage looks and go, that's weird. But you know what I hope? Is that they'll also realize, you guys are really strong. I'll be honest with you, like as a pastor, I get asked less about church things because I'm a pastor, as I do about how I'm good at my marriage. And it's normally not because I'm a pastor. It's like, when people see two loving people get through things together, there's just a bunch of people like, how do you guys do that? How do you do that? Because it's one of the most important things to people. Everybody wants to be good at this. And so if you do this right, my goodness, the opportunity to use this as a testimony to talk to the power and the love of Jesus Christ is unbelievable. We're going to take Lord's Supper here in a second, but before we do that, I'm going to close us here in prayer. And I'm going to give us a few moments where we're at to go ahead and go to the Lord and pray. My hope is as you're praying a couple things. One, if you're not a Christian, that you will realize that this God is a profound and powerful and loving God. And His ways are not the ways of the world. And if you've been frustrated as a non-believer in where your life is headed, there is a different way. A dramatically different way. And it's found with Jesus Christ. I pray that if you've never talked to Him before, that you'll just reach out to Him. That you'll just say hi. Because I, I guarantee you, if with earnestness in your heart you reach out to Him, He will respond. And for those that are believers... I pray that you will think about how your life reflects Christ and the gospel. Whether you're married or not, each and every one of us should live in such a way that the actions of our lives are a testimony to Jesus and what He did for us. Let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we are so thankful that you loved us so strangely. Father, when we were sinners, when we stood against you, when we ignored you, when we hated you, you still loved us so much so you died for us.
Father, I'm so thankful that not only did you die for us, but you showed through the power of the resurrection that you're able to overcome all the brokenness of this world. Father, I pray that this room is full of servants. Servants, Lord, who have decided not to lean on their own understanding, but to lean on you, Lord. And that even when your wisdom seems strange to us, that we will submit to it, knowing that you are perfect and that you are good. Father, we have faith that if we obey you, you will lead us to spiritual prosperity. That you will use us, Lord, to be light in this world of darkness. Father, I pray for each married couple out there. I pray, Lord, that you are at the center of their marriage. And I pray, Father, that you will speak to each of them about their own opportunities to improve and to grow. Father, we love you. And in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's all stand. Fear. He is a liar.
gentlemen who are helping me with Lord's Supper to go ahead and come up. If everybody please take a seat. You'll have to forgive me, congregation. I forgot it was Lord's Supper today, so I did not make my sermon any shorter. So bear with us for a few moments. Uh, it is always such a blessing for us to share at this table. I encourage you to remember as we take the Lord's Supper that God has given us wisdom about this. This isn't just about bread and, and grape juice. It's about us proclaiming that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. It's about proclaiming that death and that resurrection that has brought us healing and brought us His newness of life. Let me read just a, a couple words here before we jump in. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it says this, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which He was betrayed took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It goes on to give us a couple words of wisdom before we take Lord's Supper. One, if there is any sin in your heart that you know of that you have not given back to the Lord and repented of, before you take the Lord's Supper, first do that. Second, if there is another brother or sister in Christ who has asked for your forgiveness, but you've been holding it back and won't give it to them, don't take the supper until you do that first. And third, this is something that is for believers because it is the proclamation of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Let me go ahead and pray over the bread. Dear Holy Father, we remember, Lord, that as we take this, that this represents the broken body of Jesus Christ. A body that was broken, Lord, not because of lack of power, but because of a willingness, Lord, to submit to your will. A willingness, Lord, to submit so that you and I, or I'm sorry, us, could be saved from our sins. Father, what love that he was willing to go through such pain for what we deserved. Father, may you bless the one that eats this. And may they know the truth of Jesus Christ as their Savior. Amen.
took some bread and after a blessing he broke it and gave it to them and said take it, this is my body as a family let us eat and when he had taken a cup and given thanks he gave it to them and they all drank from it and he said to them this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many truly I say to you I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of heaven. Heavenly Father, as we take this cup, may you remind us, Lord, of the blood that has washed us clean. Not only, Father, did it wipe away all our sin, but it also covered us in your righteousness. Father, we have a hope in our hearts, no matter what we face, because we know one day we will be greeted as children entering the kingdom of heaven. Thank you for allowing us to be your children. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
As a family, let us drink. I always remind you when we take Lord's Supper, just pause for a moment and think of that wonderful day when we will be at that table up in heaven with Him at the head and all the believers throughout all time sitting next to us. What a wonderful thing to look forward to. Thank you for being here today. Uh, we should all thank Brother James as we get out here today because he was risky today. We only had three extra pieces of bread and four extra pieces of cup. So you tell him be more optimistic next time about the number of people that are going to show up. Um, I love being with you guys. You're in the most beautiful place in the world right now. You're in God's house surrounded by God's family. Remember two things. One, you've been given a spirit of power, love, and self-discipline. And secondly, you have a mission. Go outside those doors and go build disciples that love God Love people and follow Jesus. Have a great week. Love you guys. What? Before you go, let's all stand and join hands together. We're going to sing Family of God, just the chorus. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I've been washed in the fountain, cleansed by his blood. Join us with Jesus as we travel this sod. For I'm part of the family, the family of God. God bless y'all. Have a great week.